We received your questions regarding caring for a loved one with PD. On today's show, Dr. Kloss will address these issues. Thank you for joining us. Hello, and welcome to the Parkinson's Disease Caring Podcast. This podcast is produced for care partners and caregivers of loved ones with Parkinson's disease. This show is brought to you by Dr. Kloss's new book, you're a better Parkinson's disease caregiver than you think. Please visit pdcaring.com for more information. Thank you for submitting questions for this podcast. If you would like to submit a question for a future program, please email your question to pdcaringhelp at gmail.com. Okay, let's get started. The first question we received from a care partner of a loved one with PD was from Susan. She asks, what supplements do you recommend for my husband with PD? Susan, thank you for the question. There are several supplements that I do recommend for patients with Parkinson's disease. The first one is a prescription supplement called Fulbic. That's F-O-L-B-I-C. There are other names for this vitamin prescription, but you really have to receive a prescription for this particular vitamin because you cannot find adequate doses of these individual vitamins over the counter. When we prescribe carbidopa levodopa or dopamine therapy for patients with Parkinson's disease, there's now uh, several studies that have indicated an elevation of homocysteine levels, and this could potentially cause an increased risk of stroke, dementia, and heart disease. Therefore, if we're using dopamine therapy, we recommend adding this once-a-day vitamin to the medication list. Now, Fulbic is a vitamin that contains three ingredients folic acid, vitamin B12, and vitamin B6. In this prescription, you get 2.5 milligrams of folic acid. You get 2 milligrams or about 2,000 micrograms of vitamin B12. And then you get 25 milligrams of vitamin B6. So I recommend this prescription to our patients receiving dopamine. The second supplement that I would recommend is a calcium and vitamin D supplement. There are now studies that show that individuals over the age of 50 are not getting optimal levels of dietary calcium in their diet. This this puts people at risk of osteoporosis and eventually uh, bone fractures if a patient was to fall. So the recommended amount is 800 to 1,000 units of vitamin D per day and 1,200 milligrams of elemental calcium per day. Now, the third supplement would typically be just a good multivitamin. And I would recommend just the vitamin that is appropriate for age. Besides these supplements, 
Um, there are really no other supplements over the counter or by prescription that have been studied in good randomized clinical trials to know if these vitamins are effective, not just for disease modification, but for treating symptoms. So at this time, I really have no other supplements that I would recommend adding, but we will continue to study more of these supplements in clinical trials to see if they may be helpful in the future. Okay, great. Barbara asks, I recently heard about velvet beans helping PD symptoms. Do you recommend this and or any other foods to help with PD symptoms? Okay, Barbara, thank you for that question. This comes up not too infrequently where a patient or family member will bring up certain foods that may offer dopamine in this particular natural food item that may help treat symptoms of Parkinson's disease. The more classic bean that we often hear about is one called fava beans. The fava bean has a dopamine inside the uh, bean that can provide uh, some mild improvement in Parkinson's symptoms. The velvet bean is another one that offers this potential benefit as well. The problem that we find is that using these beans as a medication treatment for Parkinson's becomes quite challenging. Because the dopamine has such a short half-life in the body and in the brain, we really would have to take these uh, beans in our diet quite frequently throughout the day. The problem is that most people would not want to tolerate this type of diet. And number two is a little bit unpredictable to know exactly how much dopamine we will be receiving from the beans, even if you were to count out each individual bean and take the same amount each time. If you are also taking levodopa therapy and trying to add the beans in, then it can also become complicated not knowing the exact dopamine dose that a patient will receive from dose to dose. So this is typically a strategy that we do not recommend. It's best to administer the dopamine through a prescription where the dose can be held constant, the timing can be regulated, and if problems develop or more symptomatic improvement is required, then we have a better way of adjusting the medication in that situation to help the patient. Charles writes in to ask, do you recommend hyperbaric oxygen for Parkinson's disease? Charles, thank you for the question about hyperbaric oxygen. This question comes up from time to time, and I feel like there is information that people are receiving either from the internet or from other sources where this idea that giving the brain hyperbaric oxygen treatment may in some way be able to heal the damage that's developing from Parkinson's disease or somehow help to slow the progression of the illness. 
there are animal studies, by the way, that have been done on mice looking at hyperbaric oxygen and the dopamine neurons in the mice. Uh, there's even a case report that was published back in 2018 where a patient received a 30-day treatment of hyperbaric oxygen for psychiatric symptoms of Parkinson's disease. This individual had severe depression and anxiety symptoms and apparently refused medical treatment for the psychiatric symptoms. And a improvement was reported in this case report for both the depression and anxiety after the 30-day treatment of hyperbaric oxygen. Now, the problem is there are no randomized clinical trials published for hyperbaric oxygen in treating Parkinson's disease. So we really don't have good scientific evidence to suggest this treatment for patients. For those of you that are not familiar with hyperbaric oxygen, this is a treatment where a patient is placed inside of a chamber where using increased air pressure, um, oxygen levels are increased and the patient typically spends um, about an hour to two hours in the chamber receiving high oxygenation. And typically, a standard protocol is to repeat this treatment 30 to 40 times over the course of four to five weeks. The cost is quite high. Um, I've seen figures as high as $250 per session. So this can run um, quite a bit. And typically, uh, insurance will only cover this type of treatment for wound healing and uh, damage that has occurred from radiation. And so this is not an approved treatment for Parkinson's disease, so I would not expect insurance to cover the cost. I will add that I do have one patient in my practice that recently received a 30-day treatment cycle of hyperbaric oxygen. Now, he was receiving this for something called osteoradionecrosis. This is damage that had occurred to his jaw bone uh, since he received radiation in that area previously. And the hyperbaric oxygen was being used to help him uh, heal the damage that had occurred to the jawbone. After he completed the course of the hyperbaric oxygen, I was able to examine him again neurologically, and I found uh, no improvement in his Parkinson's motor symptoms, and he really reported no benefit to any of his motor or non-motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease after receiving the treatment. So I know this is not a uh, scientific study. This is just an anecdotal report. But again, it fits with our experience so far in that this is typically a very expensive treatment that uh, is unlikely to help uh, patients with Parkinson's disease. 
if used for a short course like 30 to 40 treatments. Now, we don't know if perhaps it was used over a longer period of time, um, but further studies would need to be done before we can recommend this type of treatment. Cindy would like to know, how do I know what stage my loved one is in? And how do you assess progression from stage to stage? Cindy, thank you for the question. And this is a question that I hear um, all day long in the movement disorder clinic from loved ones with Parkinson's disease. And the staging system is a little bit complicated in Parkinson's disease particularly because we really have two different staging systems that we can use. Now, the more classic staging system that was published back in the 1940s is the Honin-Yar staging system. We still use this staging system, especially in our research clinical trials. This is a five-stage scale. In stage one, we see that the symptoms, the motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease are affecting just one side of the body. In stage two, the motor problems are now involving both sides of the body. In stage three, we see balance problems developing and we have a particular test that we do in the office to assess recovery on a balance test. Then stage four, a patient will typically require some type of walking aid, such as a cane or a walker. And finally, in stage five, a patient is no longer able to ambulate without assistance and is typically uh, wheelchair or bed bound at that stage. So the staging system was used to describe the disability that a patient was experiencing due to the motor symptoms. And the problem today with the staging system is that we have very effective treatments. We have medications and we have the deep brain stimulation therapies. And these treatments may sometimes keep patients in stage two or stage three throughout the illness and it's possible that a patient may pass away from an unrelated condition and not from Parkinson's disease, and at the time of death may still be in stage 2 or stage 3, despite a long course of Parkinson's disease. Then there are other patients that, despite our treatments, may continue to progress from stage to stage and end up in a stage 5 situation, despite all of the advances that we have. So it's really difficult for a clinician to predict the uh, prognosis or the next stage and when this will take place and, and if even a patient will progress to the next stage due to the treatments that we have today. And there are also so many variables that can affect the staging system. For instance, I have a patient that... Um, if it was just the Parkinson's disease that we were rating, the patient really would be in a stage two. But because the patient has um, a, a terrible knee problem uh, that unfortunately the patient was unable to receive knee replacement surgery. And so because of this knee problem, the patient was no longer able to stand or to ambulate. 
So now being wheelchair dependent, if we use the hone and yar stage, we would have to put the patient in a stage five, which would suggest a very advanced and dismal prognosis to the family. However, uh, technically they're in stage two from the Parkinson's disease. So this is where there are some limitations of using this type of staging system. The other staging system that we have is a pathologic staging system. This staging system was developed by uh, Dr. Brock. This staging system looks at the Lewy body and neurodegenerative pathology that develops in the brain. And it looks at the locations where we see these pathological changes. So in the early stages of the six-stage system, the Lewy bodies and degenerative process is actually quite localized to certain areas of the brain and brainstem, but most of the brain is untouched. As the condition advances, the pathology can spread into the higher brain regions, moving that patient from the low stages to a stage three to a stage four, and then in the more advanced stages, five and six, when we typically see Patients developing more cognitive impairment, dementia, psychosis, and other neurological problems. Now, we don't have a way in the clinic or in the laboratory during life to assess what stage a patient may be in using this Brock staging system. This would only be a staging system that could be employed upon a patient's passing uh, if an autopsy was performed on the brain, then the neuropathologist could tell the family and could tell the referring doctor that this page that this patient passed away in a certain stage of the illness. Now, eventually, we would like to have an imaging tool, and this is in development, an imaging tool that could image the brain and identify the pathological changes that could identify these Lewy bodies and could tell us exactly where the pathology is in the brain, how severe it is. And then we could use this type of staging system to tell the patient and family where we are, what areas are affected, and we would have better information as far as predicting prognosis. So hopefully we'll see some advances in the staging system. Right now it's very difficult to make predictions on staging and progression. But we will need these kind of imaging tools in the future, especially if we see some disease-modifying treatments eventually come on the market and can help us identify if these treatments are working, if they're slowing progression or not. Our last question is from Lois, and she asks, what new therapies are in the research pipeline that look promising? Well, Lois, there are wonderful clinical trials taking place all over the world for Parkinson's disease. I am most excited about the disease-modifying clinical trials, the treatments that are currently underway that look at strategies of trying to slow the disease progression.
We see a number of companies that are researching vaccines for Parkinson's disease. This technology uses antibodies that attach to the alpha-synuclein protein and try to remove the protein and Lewy body formation out of the brain to protect healthy cells from the degenerative process. But there are a number of other treatments that are in the pipeline for disease modification, treatments that may be able to uh, block the attack from the immune system on the brain cells in the degenerative process. There are treatments that are looking at preventing the alpha-synuclein misfolding in the first place, which may uh, help protect a, a brain from developing Lewy bodies. And, and many others that are in clinical trials making their way through the different phases. So we need to continue to watch these treatments. They're giving us lots of hope. And the other side of the uh, clinical trial pipeline has to do with symptomatic treatments. So we are seeing treatments in the pipeline that are designed to treat certain symptoms Symptoms such as the psychosis or hallucination, delusion problem that may develop. Treatments that may target constipation problems, cognitive impairment, depression, anxiety, and many other symptoms that patients experience. There are also a number of clinical trials trying to help formulate better delivery systems for the dopamine this includes studies involving pump systems. This includes uh, treatments that may be able to deliver the dopamine slowly in a uh, application that goes into a dental appliance, for instance. So lots of creative and novel ways to try to bring dopamine in a more continuous delivery system to the body to help the burden of pill dosing and potentially the side effects of the current treatments that we have on the market. There are some pills that are in development that will hopefully provide longer lasting dopamine benefit for patients. And we're watching these studies very closely as well. So um, now that we're in 2021, I can tell you firsthand that we are seeing clinical trials coming back online. Last year was a very difficult year with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic affecting research trials and many trials were canceled or put on hold. But now we are seeing these trials coming back and, and the ones that were put on hold are, are starting up again. So this is very exciting to see and, and hopefully we'll see some progress occur this year. Thank you for all of the wonderful questions today. If you would like to leave us more questions by email, again, please email your questions to pdcaringhelp at gmail.com. We look forward to your questions and hope to answer them on a future show. Thank you again for joining us today. And remember, you are a better Parkinson's disease caregiver than you think. 